the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's certainly beginning to feel like spring. And then, how to think about fundamentalism. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a stunningly gorgeous Wednesday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. If you've missed any of our shows this week, including just a uh, fascinating time that we spent with Nate Johnson yesterday from the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. He was just a ton of fun, and uh, his story was unbelievable. I joked with him that we had to go two segments with him because uh, after the first segment, uh, his story, he was still in jail. He was still in prison, and so uh, we needed to keep going. And so if you missed any of Nate's unbelievable story, I'd encourage you to go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. Every now and then we do ones where I'm just like, you know what? That was a lot of fun. That was a good time. So check him out. And we are glad that you're joining us today. Well, there's a lot of things that we can disagree about in the world these days. There's a lot of things that get us worked up. There's a lot of dissension and disagreement. But there's one thing that we can all unite over. That's this. 60 degrees in the middle of February is fantastic. And my producer, Keith, said that that there's a rumor it might hit 70 next week. And, hey, we're just going to take it. Although there is a sense of in me that sometimes you feel a strange sense of guilt and like you don't know what to do when it is this beautiful outside when it's not supposed to be. Uh, the fatalistic side of us from Chicago goes, well, that means it's going to be a terrible March or a terrible April. But, hey, let's take it right now. There's people walking out at the park. There's probably flowers starting to bloom too early. Uh, 60 degrees. It is just ridiculous out there. And uh, even this morning when I got up to let my dogs out, um, it was it was just uh it was just crazy. It felt like April or May. Uh, but yeah, hopefully we can all enjoy it. Some of you, I guess, out there are like, oh, I wish it was still winter. Where's winter? But that's that's a you problem. It is fantastic out there. And it got me thinking, let's let's start with like a little devotional this morning centered around how beautiful it is outside, because every year when spring comes around and I get it, it's not springtime yet. I'm jinxing us. We're going to have a snowstorm at some point, whatever else. But with it feeling like springtime, every springtime, I think, is meant to point us to to this wonderful biblical truth that God is doing something new, that God is doing something new. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. This is out of the English Standard Version. Remember not the former things, 
nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? It will make a way. I will make a way uh, in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I'm doing a new thing. Spring it will it has spring. It's it's that's the feeling that we get. Um, every every time it starts to get nice outside, like when you see the grass turn green, when you see flowers start to bloom, when you kind of come from the slumber of the winter time, and it's one of the funniest things about Chicago, right? Um is that you don't see your neighbors at all, all winter. And then it starts to get nice and you all start to come outside and and you start to go, oh, that's right. That's right. And some of you need to hear this this morning uh, because you're, you're in some sort of stage of life in which um, it's a struggle. Life is hard for you. It could just be the aging process, right? It could just be physical issues. I uh, This is somewhat embarrassing, but this happens to us as we get older. I, I got out of bed this morning and I felt like I hurt my arm sleeping last night. Have you ever had that as you get older? Like, hey, something on my body hurts, but all I did was sleep. It didn't hurt when I went to bed. And now uh, it's like, can you pull a muscle sleeping? And that that aches and pains is a reminder uh, that that there is, um, you know, decay. And I mean, not to get too uh, dark about it, but that that death still kind of reigns uh, in this world that we live in, in this broken world that we live in. So for some of you, it's physical ailments. For others of you, uh, you've got relational brokenness. Like where, you know, these people that I've always counted on, they're no longer in my life or, you know, you've got that child who is kind of off the pathway and the others of you, it's, um, you know, it could be financial, it could be employment, it could be anything. And we cry out to God, like, like do something. And then we read these verses as we wake up in the morning out of bed and our bodies hurt, even though we didn't do anything. And we read these verses that say, God is doing something new. He's making all things new. Our God is a God of the springtime. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of rejuvenation. He's a God who makes things new. And we can trust him with that. So we can come to him in prayer as we struggle. Uh, we can also, uh, we can come to him um, with our struggles and our hurts and all of this. And we can trust him knowing that he's making things new now, but not just now, but there is coming a day when all will certainly be made new, when the physical ailments and the relational ailments and the financial ailments will not be part of the reality. But instead, we, we, can, we can focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and know that he... Uh, is making all things new. What does it mean for you today as we enjoy the springtime early weather? Uh, what does it mean for you 
that in Christ, God is making all things new. Does that give you hope today? Go for a walk today in the sunshine. As the sun, the sun will be down in another hour or two. But before the sun goes down, go for a walk, go outside, enjoy the weather and allow it to cause you to contemplate on that fact that we serve a God who is making all things new. And because he's making all things new, we know that there's coming a day where there will be no more death and there will be no more pain. There will be no more aches and pains. There will be no more cancer or physical ailments. None of those things will be our reality. And so we can hold on. We can have hope. What does springtime bring with it? Springtime, warmer weather, greener grass brings with it hope. It brings with it hope. And even today, as we enjoy nicer weather, we can have hope in the thing that God is doing a new thing. He is and will make all things new. He is a God of restoration and a God of rejuvenation. All right, Scott Sauls, he's a uh, author. He's been on the show, pastor. I don't believe he's pastoring anywhere. He had a uh, something that, what was his church? Uh, Emmanuel Presbyterian, I believe, down in Nashville. And uh, Scott had some what was it? It's like some anger issues that they were dealing with. And he ended up uh, being put on leave and then resigning or day split. And so I don't know where Scott Sauls is at currently, uh, but you know what? He's still a good follow on Twitter. He's still a good author and he's still a good speaker. I hope for a resurgence, kind of a second act of pastoring or a next act, I should say from Scott Sauls. He says this at Twitter, he talks about fundamentalism. And he says, fundamentalism is a tone, not a belief system. It can be religious or secular. Let's pause there before he tries to give it the tone, some definition. I've never really thought of fundamentalism, anything outside of the religious, but it's we're seeing it more and more in our day. Right. Right wing fundamentalism like I. And we're going to understand here more what the word fundamentalism means. But we often have seen it in churches. Uh, Fundamentalist churches are those churches that tend to be high rule based, uh, you know, high legalism. Legalism and fundamentalism tend to go together. Uh, It's those churches that we joke put the fun in fundamentalism we had a church locally from where I'm pastoring, where I went in to meet with the pastor and I was like, Hey, are you guys an evangelical church? And he looked at me with like no emotion and just said, we're fundamentalists. Like that's, I think if you grew up in the church, you know what a fundamentalist church is. But I think Saul's makes a great point to say it's tone, not a belief system. You could stick to the fundamentals and not be fundamentalist, I think is his point. So he's going to define the tone. And I like that he says it could be religious or secular. So he's going to go and talk about the tone. He says the tone is as follows. Number one, presuming that you and or your group have no blind spots and have gotten everything right and relying on groupthink to confirm your bias. There's a lot there. That's that's a lot in a short sentence. Presuming you and your group have no blind spots and have gotten everything right. Uh, that's called Twitter, by the way, but you can uh, you see this in churches all the time where we don't allow for the gray. We don't allow for the 
let's debate this. We don't allow for the maybe the way I was raised got this wrong. It's instead I'm right. My belief system is right about everything. And there's no that's a great way to put it. There's no blind spots, things I haven't thought about, things that I might have been more culturally based, things that might have been more uh, traditional based, whatever else it might be. And so um, no blind spots I haven't gotten anything and relying on groupthink to confirm your bias. This gets at what we've been saying a lot lately, that we live in a culture where everything feels tribal, where everything feels like um, I only surround myself with people that I agree with. And who, more importantly, agree with me. And therefore, we speak into each other's lives these exact same things. And it only grows the fact that I go, see, I've got it all figured out. I've got it all right. And I'm going to tell you where you're wrong. This is why it's important that we surround ourselves, even with Christians who think differently than us about certain things. And certainly non-Christians who think differently about things. And then he says, number two about the tone of fundamentalism, treating people with contempt who are not fully aligned with you or your group. This is um, the arrogance, the pride that the Bible speaks of. This is the Pharisees in the New Testament. Not just presuming I'm right, you're wrong, but also I'm right you're wrong, and I'm therefore better than you. There's a pride, and Jesus speaks so much about humility. But there's a pride. Again, we see it in the Pharisees. This, uh, we are the religious scholars. We have all the answers kind of bow down to us. And if you disagree, you're wrong, and you're to be chided for that. Saul's later on goes to clarify. He says that some, as some have pointed out, there's a traditional definition of fundamentalism that points to the fundamental truths of the Bible, of faith, biblical orthodoxy. That's not the definition I'm engaging here. Rather, I'm referring to the fact that we all have our own set of fundamentals around which we organize our lives, beliefs, and judgments. When an ism is added to the word, it gets it goes sour as described in, a, in the original tweet. See, for example, partisan politics from left and right extremes. When it comes to the church and religious fundamentalism, um, I would point you to the older brother in the prodigal son story. I would point you to the prodigal son story. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, the prodigal son story is often, and rightfully so, the focus of it is on the younger brother. He is the one who runs away. He is the one who is lost. He is the one that the father shows grace to. He is the one that the father welcomes back, even though he does not deserve it. He's the one who gets what he does not deserve. But there's a second brother in that story. The second brother in the prodigal son story, um, he gets mad that his brother gets welcomed back. He says, Father, I've always been here. I've never left you. There's a, a judgmentalism to the older son that it does make sense to some level. 
But the scariest part of the prodigal son story is that at the end of the story, we know that the younger son is inside the house in the party. We know that the father has gone back into the house. We do not know whether or not the older brother has gone back into the house. Friends, I think the call here is to recognize your own blind spots. Do not allow your religion or your worldview to be pride, prideful. That, you know what, I've got it all figured out and I'm better than you. We need to stick to the fundamentals, what he calls biblical orthodoxy here. That's not what this is against. It's a pride and judgmentalism uh, that says, I have it all figured out and I'm somehow better than you. You need to listen to me and almost bow down before me. That's the fundamentalism that we need to repent of and that we need to be careful of. I want to talk about spiritual maturity. So ask yourself this question as you're driving in your car or listening on the podcast. Ask yourself this question. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? What does a mature Christian look like? Because we all want to grow in maturity. We want to be mature Christians. But I wonder if oftentimes we have the wrong markers. Well, a mature Christian does this or a mature Christian does this. And so I think it's helpful to wrestle with just the definition of maturity, of what it means to be a mature Christian. Paul David Tripp dove into this on Twitter, and and I'm grateful that he did uh, because he's I saw three, at least three tweets uh, that I want to just read for us. Paul David Tripp is a pastor. He's an author, a speaker. Uh, He writes this in his bio. He says, connecting the transforming power of Jesus Christ to everyday life. So let's read these three and just unpack them as we go, because I think they help flesh out at least a little bit. What does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? First one he says is this. Spiritual maturity is about learning to trust scripture rather than trusting your own heart. Spiritual maturity is about learning to trust scripture rather than trusting your own heart. So what's it mean to be a mature Christian? It's to be one who is grounded in the word of God, that that is our guide, right? The Bible says, uh, thy word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a guide. It leads us. And so what it means to be a mature Christian is that we increasingly are skeptical of our own heart. We're increasingly skeptical that we know the way we should go. And we instead, above that, put the Bible. We trust Scripture. Now, our heart obviously plays into this a lot, but we, for the big decisions of life, for the uh, which should I do this or not do this, for all of this stuff, uh, but also for questions of like, who is God? What is the church? For all of these things, we... We are increasingly oriented towards scripture rather than trusting our own heart to go, oh, this is what I should do. I should go in this direction or this is what I think. Be careful of a pastor who always says from the pulpit or somebody who leads a small group who's constantly saying, this is what I think. Obviously, we're interpreting scripture, but we want to be grounded in scripture. And that's what a sign of spiritual maturity is. Here's his second one. 
mature Christians know it's far better to confess sin than to deny or hide it. What's your view of repentance? What's your view of confession? It's a sign of maturity, Tripp says here, and I would agree with him. It is a sign of maturity when we are more and more willing to bring the things that are in the dark into the light. When we more and more know that we are not perfect, that we do not need to hide from sin. It's a sign of maturity to know it's far better, he says, to confess sin than deny it or hide it. Why is he saying it's far better? Why would we say it's far better? Because for one, the only way we get healing and forgiveness is through confession. It's through repentance. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. How do we get cleansing? How do we get purity? The first step is confession. The inverse is is true then as we deny sin, as we hide from sin, then it continues to rot at us from the inside. And it's not good for us. So a sign of maturity is not greater perfection. It's not less sin in our life necessarily, but it's a greater willingness to bring it into the light, to confess. Do you see confession as a sign of maturity? We'll wrap these up here after this third one. He says this, mature Christians have come to understand they cannot walk alone. This is the power of community. That New Testament Christianity is a one another business. It is do this together. We, us, we, us. There is no concept in the Bible of just kind of me and Jesus, this kind of island Christianity. And as we grow in maturity, Tripp is saying, we begin to understand with greater clarity that we need other people. That it's not just about us. That I need more than just I'm going to live in isolation and read my Bible and then all will be well. But that we need other people. That if we are called to run a race with endurance, how do I endure? It's with, it's with other people, not just coaching me, but spurring me on. The Bible says spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's a sign of maturity that I recognize that I need other people. What strikes me about these three things, especially the last two, is I think in churches we've often held these up as immaturity. The immature Christian needs other people. The immature Christian needs to be confessing. But I think Paul David Tripp is right here. No, no, that's a sign of maturity. That I willingly confess. That I can that I can't do this by myself. That I need other people, that I need God's word. I need to be rooted in his word. I think we've given the wrong picture of maturity in the church, quite frankly. Like if I could sum a lot of it up, I would say to be a maturing Christian is to greater recognize your need for the gospel. Yet sometimes, oftentimes I would say the picture of the, of the gospel that we paint in churches is that that's the entryway into the faith. That's the entryway into the church, that that's for beginners. And then we move on to meet the acts of righteousness to the deeper theology. No, I think as we mature, we begin to understand greater and greater and greater our continued need 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And at the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christianity, the maturing process is a greater understanding that I am in desperate need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I'm in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need other people to walk along along with me. I need to confess the sin, right? Run the race with endurance marked out for you. Getting rid of the sin that so easily entangles the book of Hebrews says, I confess sin. And realizing that when I confess sin, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin and purify me, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And then I realize I just need other people. How would you classify a maturing Christian? What does maturity look like for you? Is it knowledge? Knowledge is good. Knowledge also puffs up, we read. Is it knowledge? Is it perfection? I would suggest that maturity ultimately is a greater recognition of my need for Jesus, my need for the gospel, that after 50 years in the faith, I desperately need him as much or more so than I did when I first entered into a relationship with him. Really good words there from Paul David Tripp. And as we close out the show today, I want to do so with one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, pastor on Twitter by the name of Chris Davis, he had a really funny tweet about the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me read it to you. The section headings of Ecclesiastes in the message version of the Bible read like the tracks of an emo album. And then he lists. These are the section headings of Ecclesiastes in the message. I hate life, slow suicide, why am I working like a dog, a salary of smoke, things are bad, no one can control the wind, one fate for everybody before the years take their toll. I got to be honest, I think he nailed it. I think that it may be an emo album or, or kind of like it. I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s and the 90s. I was in high school when the grunge albums came out, the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jams and the Soundgardens. That's what that is. You could, uh, you could see uh, Pearl Jam having a song called Why Am I Working Like a Dog? And you could see Nirvana having one called I Hate Life or Things Are Bad. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that's hilarious how he just kind of nailed that. But I want to end our show by talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it's an Old Testament book that not many of us know what to do with. But I think it speaks so clearly and plainly to our day today. The book of Ecclesiastes, church history says that it was written by King Solomon uh, kind of near the end of his life. So what do we know about King Solomon? We know that King Solomon was the wisest man ever to exist, right? He had wisdom beyond all measure. He had power and money beyond what anybody, even to this day, he had way more money in that day than even uh, scholars will tell you Jeff Bezos does now, for instance. He had wealth beyond comprehension. He had power. Other kings were traveling to see him. He had wisdom. He had wealth. He had power. He had pleasure beyond what you can imagine. He had everything. So basically to sum up Solomon, you could say this. He had success. 
He had everything that we tend to long after in this world, but he had it to excess, to way more than anybody else in before him or after him. And so put yourself in Solomon's shoes. If you were Solomon and you got to the end of your life and you had more, all the wealth you can imagine, all the pleasure you can imagine, all the power you can imagine, all the wisdom you can imagine. If you got to the end of your life, what do you think you would say looking back on it? I've heard scholars, uh, theologians say that Ecclesiastes is basically we get a look into Solomon's um, his journals. At the end of his life, looking back, if you got to the end of your life and you had accomplished all of those things, what would you say? What would you look back and say? I don't know. I would probably say that was awesome. Life was great. It was beyond what I could have imagined. Like he achieved everything that so many of us spend all of our lives saying we're trying to achieve money, power, possessions, pleasure, comfort, success, adulation, fame, all of it. He had it more than we could ever imagine. And if we're chasing after those things and those are the right things to be chasing after, then you would get to the end of your life and say, that was a good, I did it. I did it. But instead In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon over and over and over again goes meaningless, meaningless. All of it's meaningless. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. All of it's meaningless. And you read it and it's striking because you go, really, Solomon? All of that money that you had, all of that power, all of that pleasure, all of that fame was meaningless? And the book of Ecclesiastes reads like a depressed guy, a regretful guy. To put it another way, Solomon achieved in spades the American dream. And we really need to wrestle with the fact that the person throughout human history who achieved that dream more than anybody else got to the end of his life regretful, depressed, saying it's all meaningless. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Friends, I think it reminds us of this. It reminds us that there will never be enough money. There will never be enough power. There will never be enough pleasure. There will never be enough fame to fully satisfy what's going on in our souls, what we desperately need. Solomon himself says it. He gets then to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the very last verses of the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's wrapping it all up and he says, uh, I've seen it. all." Basically, he says, um, fear God and obey his commandments. Worship God and follow after him. What in the end, Solomon, looking back over this amazing life of his, he says, this is my conclusion. Fear God and worship and obey his commandments. Worship God and obey him. Follow after him. That that's where life is found. That's the purpose of life. The guy who had everything gets to the end and says the purpose of life is worship God, fear God, and obey his commandments. Do you believe he got to the right end? 
in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life to the full. They may have abundant life, not in the future, but have it now. Do you believe that abundant life is found in Jesus Christ? Or is it if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more power, none of these things are in and of themselves bad. But it's the belief that they will be ultimate. It's the belief that they will ultimately satisfy. That they will ultimately satisfy all that our hearts and our souls long for. It's then that we get off course. Do you believe Solomon's conclusion? Fear God and obey his commandments. Worship God and follow him. That's the point of all of it. Do you believe Jesus's words? I have come to bring life and life to the full. This is about the direction of your life, friends, the direction of my life. What are we striving after? I'll close with this. The book of Hebrews says, run the race with endurance, throwing off the things and the sins that so easily entangled eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Where are you running your race towards? We run our race towards what we think will ultimately satisfy us. And Jesus says, only he can ultimately satisfy us. Solomon says that the ultimate conclusion is fear God and obey his commandments. What do you believe will ultimately satisfy? Well, we're glad that you joined us again today on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Hope you enjoy your evening. Enjoy that nice weather. Enjoy your night. And then join us again tomorrow on Thursday for yet another episode here of the common good until then have a great night my name is brian Fromm. you've been listening to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.